1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After a manhunt that lasted more than two decades, an alleged architect of Rwanda's 1994 genocide is in custody and headed for a UN tribunal. But how did Felician Kabuga manage to stay on the run for so long? And... If a past civilization didn't even have a system of writing, what can archaeologists learn about its people? Increasingly, they're relying on soundscapes, replicating bygone instruments and measuring the acoustics of archaeological sites. But first... you remember Brexit? Before COVID-19 spread havoc around the world, the issue that consumed Britain was its divorce from Europe and the consequences of that split.
2: Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. For many people, this is an astonishing moment of hope.
1: Prime Minister Boris Johnson had campaigned for Brexit and triumphantly led the country out of the Union on January 31st.
2: This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama.
1: He was more right than he could have known. But COVID-19 isn't the only thing shaping Britain's future. The country still has to negotiate a new relationship with the EU. Things are still tense. That was made clear at the think tank, the Institute for Government, last Friday, by Stefan de Rink, who advises Europe's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier.
3: I think the UK has always been combative in these negotiations from the very start, so during the withdrawal phase as well.
1: Meanwhile, David Frost, Britain's chief Brexit negotiator, insisted last week in Parliament that the new relationship will be in place by the end of the year.
0: It's the firm policy of the government um, uh, that we will not extend transition periods, and if asked, uh, we would not agree to it.
1: Negotiations have begun again, and they're not going well. Well,
2: this week's Brexit talks between Britain and the EU are the last ones before a summit of EU leaders in the middle of June reviews whether the talks are making any progress. John Pete is our Brexit editor. And at the moment, it doesn't look as if they are making any progress, and those EU leaders will have some difficult decisions to make.
1: And so in a nutshell, what is it that both sides want from this?
2: The idea is to have a free trade agreement at the end of the year, um, because when Britain leaves the transition period, which it's in now, you either have a free trade agreement or you revert to trading on World Trade Organization rules, which are more obstructive to trade. So both sides want that. But of course, they want it on their own terms. So Britain would like to have a free trade agreement without observing any EU rules, with control of its fisheries, with no role for the European Court of Justice. The EU would like Britain, which it sees as a potential large competitor, to observe quite a lot of the same rules as it does now. And it would like to preserve, as now, its access to British fishing waters. And it still thinks there should be common rules It is possible for a compromise to be found in between these two positions, but at the moment both sides are just sticking to their extreme negotiating mandates. What do you mean by that? What what signs are there that things are are not moving ahead? Well, the two negotiators um, have finished each round of negotiations by saying we're not making much progress, particularly on the contentious issues, what the European Union calls the level playing field, which is a requirement that it would like Britain to observe quite a lot of the same social, environmental and state subsidy rules as it does now. Uh, the British side say, no, there's no way we can do that. And there's no way we can give you access to our fishing waters. That we're going to be a sovereign nation that decides these things for ourselves. And at the end of each round, they basically said, no, the other side needs to move if there's going to be a deal. They, the, the contentious issues are just are just really consist of each side restating their position and not trying to move towards a compromise. Does that leave either side in a particularly strong or weak position? I mean, generally, I think the EU is in a stronger position than the UK because it's by far the bigger partner. And it is also the case that if Britain were to leave the transition period with no trade deal, the economic impact would be worse for Britain than for the EU. On the other hand, there seem to be some in the British government who actually think leaving without a trade deal would be a good thing because they just want to get shot of the any involvement with the EU. So I don't think it's totally straightforward to say the, all the cards are on the EU side. On the other hand, I think that when the leaders meet in, in a couple of weeks' time to consider this, the EU leaders will not shift their position because they think it's, it's a very important position to maintain, that you can't give Britain access to the single market
1: in free trade terms
2: unless Britain fulfills various obligations not to be too
1: competitive and undercut the rules. And I imagine this is also affected by other factors. These negotiations aren't even taking place in person because of COVID-19. What impacts is that having? I think the, the pandemic has made everything much more complicated, much more difficult.
2: You can't really, as a lot of people have said, you can't really negotiate the fine details of a trade deal. Remotely, it does require quite a lot of confidence on both sides and the ability to sort of, you know, talk to people in the margins of meetings. And those things are very difficult to do when you're just having video meetings. And on top of that, of course, both in Britain and in Europe, leaders have been completely sidetracked by the arrival of COVID-19 uh, because of the huge impact it's having on their economies and, and, and so on. So they don't really have the political time to concentrate on what could be a very complicated negotiation between Britain and the EU on either side. So the negotiators have been really left to get on get on with it themselves. And because they haven't got the sort of political cover for making compromises, they're not making compromises. And so what's the
1: the timetable in terms of getting a resolution here?
2: The transition period, which was part of the withdrawal agreement that was approved uh, at the end of last year and then ratified in January, which meant that Britain left the European Union formally on the 31st of January, that has a clause in it which says the transition period comes to an end on the 31st of December, unless uh, by the end of June... The two sides agree that we should extend it by up to one or two years. And the expectation at the beginning of the year, when Covid-19 hit, was that because it was causing such chaos, both sides would probably say, actually, we need to have more time to negotiate a comprehensive free trade deal. But in the last sort of few months, the British government has started to toughen its position and say there are no circumstances in which we will extend the, the, the deadline. Um, the the EU has made clear they would be very happy to extend the deadline and extend the transition period. The UK is saying no. Um, uh, unless that changes by the end of June, I think we can look forward to the transition period ending as scheduled at the end of December. What's in it for Britain to to refuse to extend the deadline? I think Boris Johnson thinks since he won the election in December with such a large margin... He really, you know, there's nothing nothing to stop him doing what he wants, as it were. And there are people in the government who just think a completely clean break with the European Union would be better than any sort of relationship with the European Union. Uh, And they also think that the economic risk of a very hard Brexit without a trade deal is lower than it was simply because COVID-19 is causing such economic chaos everywhere. So if you're having, um, you know, to take a huge hit on your economy then another hit from a very hard Brexit without a trade deal won't won't be so noticeable. And they will then be able to tell people, we've got clear of the European Union altogether and we're now turning our attention to the rest of the world. I think that's economically quite a risky thing to do, but the politics, you can see, might, might work for the Conservatives. John, thank
1: you very much for joining us. Thank you. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, To check out the best introductory offer wherever you are around the world, just go to slash intelligence offer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Last month, Africa's highest profile fugitive was arrested in an apartment just outside Paris. Felicia and Cabuga, now 84 is a suspect in Rwanda's 1994 genocide. He's alleged to have been a driving force behind a horrific outpouring of violence in which members of the country's ethnic Hutu majority slaughtered at least half a million people, mostly of its minority Tutsi ethnicity. Yesterday, a French court ordered that he should face trial at a United Nations tribunal. For more than 20 years, he had been on the run, and questions have grown about how he managed it.
0: I think it's not an exaggeration to say that this was Africa's most wanted man.
1: Adrian Blomfield is The Economist's East Africa correspondent.
0: The French police said they had arrested one of the world's most wanted fugitives. He is, in many ways, the kingpin of the Rwandan genocide.
1: So what is it he's accused of?
0: There are three key accusations against this man. He was one of Rwanda's richest men. He made his fortune in the tea industry, but he moved into real estate. He moved into import-export. He used his import-export business, allegedly, to import hundreds of thousands of machetes into Rwanda. That genocide in 1994, in which 500,000 people at least uh, were killed in 100 days, most of those people were killed with machetes. There are two other issues. The second, the Hutu power militia. Rwanda is divided between two main ethnic groups, the Hutu majority and the Tutsi minority. The Tutsi were the target, but a lot of moderate Hutus were killed. A lot of the killing was committed by a Hutu power militia called the Interahamwe. Kabuga is again a central figure in the Interahamwe. He's accused of helping to finance their training, of supplying uniforms, And of supplying the vehicles that they drove around the country. And then the third issue is Radio Television Libre de Mille Collines, the radio station that provided the soundtrack of the genocide. It preached hate against the Tutsi minority. It it always referred to them as INZ, as cockroaches. And then when the genocide began, it urged the killers on. It kept saying, the job is not yet done, the graves are half full. And Kabuga was seen as one of the funders of the radio station.
1: But Mr Kabuga has has since become better known not for what he did, but for seemingly uh, always escaping justice.
0: Kabuga lived in many different countries, uh, most notably Kenya, and there were various attempts to catch him, and these always failed. Kabuga had managed to weave a protective barrier around him. It seems that he was being protected by very high-profile people connected to the former Kenyan president, Daniel Moy. Daniel Moy had a close relationship with juvenile Habyarimana, who was the Rwandan president whose killing when his plane was shot down triggered the genocide in 1994, although the genocide had been well planned. Now, Kabuga, two of his children had married two of Abiyarimana's children. So he was very much in that inner circle in Kenyan political society. And that is one of the key reasons why he managed to evade capture for so long. A lot of the aliases that uh, allowed him to move around the world were provided to him by the Kenyan authorities. The Americans after the September 11th attacks in 2001 widened their scope of international fugitives and they put a $5 million reward on Kabuga's head. And at some stage before January 2003, a Kenyan Wheeler dealer, a man about town, a guy called William Manuhe walked into the US embassy and said, I know where Kabuga is. He's here in Nairobi. Manuhe was instructed to lure Kabuga to his house to discuss a business deal because Kabuga still had many business interests in Kenya. Something went wrong. The Americans and top Kenyan policemen waited outside this house in a smart Nairobi suburb for six hours. Nothing happened. There was no sign of Kabuga and there was no sign of Manuhe. And a couple of days later, the police burst in and they found the informant's body, the FBI informant's body, on the floor of a bedroom. According to members of Manuhe's family, who I've spoken to, uh, part of his face had been melted off, there was blood on the walls and so on. He had been shot.
1: And so what was different this time around then? Why wasn't he able to evade justice one more time?
0: I think the key thing seems to be that he moved from Kenya. And we don't know why he moved from Kenya to France. His family, he had 11 children, were living in Europe. They lived in Britain, they lived in France, they lived in Belgium. So he might, as he got older, wanted to have been close to him. But he was not so safe in France because he was not presumably being protected by high level people. We don't know, but we presume that is the case. And then Last year, a man called Serge Bramets, who is the chief prosecutor for something called the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals, this was the body that took over from the UN tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia that was investigating war crimes. He essentially reopened the Kabuga file. And there were various meetings with police forces across the world. The British police and the Belgian police managed to collate information that the members of the family were moving back and forwards to France quite a lot. And and essentially, the investigators honed down onto this address in Asnières-sur-Seine. And they noticed that at one time or another, every single one of the 11 children were going into this flat. So they watched this flat. And then when they were sure, they made their move.
1: So how do you see this playing out now? Will he be brought to justice? Will, Will people believe he has been brought to justice at this late stage?
0: There's no denying this was an extraordinary moment. People had given up on this man ever being brought to justice. Uh, of course, he, he is denying the allegations against him. But, you know, the, the desire to see this man go on trial, particularly in Rwanda, is huge. But he is 84 years old. He claims he's 87. He does seem to suffer from a number of diseases, including possibly dementia. So even if we do see him in the dock, are we going to actually see much of a mayor culpa? And of course, you know, the old maxim of justice delayed is justice denied. You know, a lot of people who would like to have seen some kind of retribution may have died. And those who see an 84-year-old man might feel there's not much point in this anymore. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having me.
1: Music has a long, rich, and inventive history. It's possible that early humans used their voices to make music even before they developed speech. They made instruments from what was laying around. The first known are flutes from more than 40,000 years ago. Rhythm gave way to melody, to harmony, to the well tempered clavier. Beethoven's fifth, and eventually, Justin Bieber. Anthropologists are accustomed to looking back in time to understand more about music. But researchers are now using music itself to study the past.
3: Researchers are creating replicas of ancient musical instruments to try and understand more about how they were used or how people would have experienced them.
1: Michael Dumiak writes about science for The Economist.
3: And it plays into a broader trend of recording and examining what they call soundscapes, sound environments in their original locations.
1: And how do they do that?
3: So if you think about your kitchen, this is a specific place. At a specific time in the morning, you may have a tea kettle going or bird song coming in the window. But if you can imagine that in a temple setting, or if you can imagine this in a church, churches are shaped the way they are, partly to propagate sound to help in the ritual that is happening there. So what these researchers, what these archaeologists are doing are using site recordings and acoustic metrics, and they're trying to map a sound environment, to model it, and try and create a specific way to read a specific place. And
1: this is a new thing, a new branch of archaeology?
3: This has been going on for some time, I would say, from at least the early 70s. In recent years, uh, it's getting easier to do. You don't have to lug around so much heavy equipment to do it. You can create models and maps using acoustic information more quickly. There are researchers from State University of New York in Buffalo and in Albany that map the sound of voices and conch shell trumpets around a Puebloan dwelling site in Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. They're able to show that the platform mounds in the canyon were chosen particularly because they're well-placed to propagate sound, to send sound through the downtown, the settlement. And you've been looking at another effort in Mexico. Yeah, these researchers in particular created replicas of instruments found at Teotihuacan, northeast of what's now Mexico City. They intend to play these replicas at Teotihuacan to understand more about how they may have been used, how people might have experienced them. The main researcher I spoke with, Arnd Ajay Boat, has a particular interest in music, and one of the first excavations he was involved in was at Teotihuacan. I went to Ajay's farmhouse in his studio, and he played me some of the replicas that he's working on. I have these little ball records. The main one he presented was called a quadruple flute. It's about 15 centimeters long, with four chambers all the same length. Because it has four chambers, Ajay was able to play overtones. And so you get multiple tones, which is a bit like a chord in a guitar, even though you only have four sound holes. He also played a smaller whistle. You could do little runs on it. It was a little bit like an Irish tin whistle. He showed me also a water whistling vessel. This is more decorative, and it's a small little thing the size of your hand. There are two chambers. You put water in one chamber. The water pours through a little channel into the other chamber, and it makes a whistle.
1: So what do you think that all that they're doing can ultimately tell us about the city and the people who lived there?
3: The people who lived in Teotihuacan are quite mysterious. It was at its height about 1,500 years ago and once was home to 125,000, 150,000 people. They had no system of writing and the city was eventually abandoned and the Aztecs moved in. One thing we do know about them is that music is important to their culture, very important to their culture. So without any written record, the culture here is somewhat lost, so we don't know all that much about it. Hearing these actual instruments in this actual place perhaps can help us fill in the gaps of our understanding of daily life there.
1: Michael, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow.